this is my first time ever hosting a podcast, Seth, so you are in for an adventure. All right. Uh, I want to introduce to you my guest, uh, who is Seth Scott. He is one of our uh, directional elders here at Radius. So for those of y'all that haven't met him, he actually uh, attends and serves over at Radius Irmo. Uh, Seth has got his PhD in counseling, education, and supervision, which is pretty cool to have you on our team right now with all the stuff that we're dealing with, even on Sunday, this He, She, His series as, as well as stuff we're dealing with on a daily basis. So really, really glad to have you on the team and excited to do this. We're going to try to get you to give all the answers. That all way right, I, won't, yeah. I won't have any pressure, <laughs> which is cool. So we decided as an elder team that we want to go ahead and, and uh, walk our folks through this, this series of He, She, His. I thought it would be cool for you to just talk about your experience, um, particularly when it comes to uh, – Dealing now, you deal with all kinds of folks with all kinds of stuff going on in their lives, yep. but particularly uh, as we we talk about gender, how's that how's that impact your job and what goes on over there? Yeah, so so I have a couple different jobs. Um, so my primary job is as a professor uh, at Columbia International University. So in teaching, um, I can teach. I teach from a biblical worldview. Uh, we address clinical excellence, but biblical soundness. Um, and so we, we wrestle through a lot of these same issues that we are as a church with our students and being able to understand and respond in a biblical way to the world around us. But some of the other things I do is I still provide clinical work through my private practice, doing supervision with therapists. And so in that, we align by you know, making sure that the values that we hold, um, which are biblical values, aren't necessarily the same values that other people hold. Mm. And so the job of doing counseling isn't to get someone to agree to our values. It's to try to help somebody understand how their values are impacting the choices that they're making mm. and how that influences their life. And so part of counseling is to expand their perspective on their life experience, on the situations they're dealing with, and see how that's connected to the value choices that they're making, both implicitly and explicitly, because you know we hold values that we say we hold, but the real values are what drive our, our decisions and mm. what we're trying to become. And so in a clinical setting, yeah, we spend a lot of time talking Really, the core issue is identity, um, yeah. is how do I understand myself? How do I understand myself in relation to others, in relation to God? Um, and then we usually, in our culture, we define ourself first. And then yeah. we define those relationships based on an assumption of our identity of self, which we would argue from a biblical framework is is backwards. Mm. Yeah. Um, I thought... I, that was really helpful. You and I talked about that before I got to preach uh, on Sunday and uh, kind of introduce this subject for our folks. I thought what might be cool is for us to walk through those f- five. I, I don't know if you're, as an educator, you okay with me making up words for what things are? <laughs> Py- pylons evidently is the wrong right, word. Right. So the pylines that, yeah. that hold up a beach house, we came out with four. And certainly the enemy, as I, I refer to, Satan has been on the attack on this thing for a long time. Um, and, and and tries to attack our identity, tries yeah. to dissuade us from placing our identity not only in God as our Creator, but now Jesus as our Savior. Yep. So let's let's go through the four. Yeah. And just just off the cuff, you had some great you, you gave some re- great resources that we have available for everybody online. But creation, when we say creation as an educator, what's the, what's the first thing that comes to mind for our folks? Is there uh, some of them have believed that God's a Creator since birth, but it's been yep. challenged, and so, so it will be some helps for. For those folks, yeah, I mean, the basis of creation defines your purpose, meaning, and, and value in life. And so, we have, as followers of Christ, um, the basic philosophy that actually is 
through even our kind of American constitution and, and our ethic as a society is, is the dignity of the individual, right? Human worth, human mm -hmm. value. Um, and that comes from creation in that being made in the image of God means that we have inherent value and worth. If, you know, if we are happenstance, uh, if we are created from stardust or from goo, um, and you could or could or could not have occurred, then what you do with your life has a lot less consequence than God designing mm -hmm. us for a purpose to work, carry out his will, to demonstrate him as his, as his emissaries, as his ambassadors in the earth. Um, it makes a big difference. Mm. Yeah. And so for you guys, if you're taking this in, if you hit the website, you want there's some great apologetic resources we have out there. If you if you want to hear the smart guys kind of argue about this, there's plenty of resources like that. But we kind of buzz right through. And then we came to the image of God, which you deal with all the time as you coach and counsel. Uh, first thing that comes to mind when you're thinking about our folks and the image of God and, and, and the necessity, as, as we believe in creation, to also believe we're creating in God's image. Yeah, so being made in the image of God, there's a couple different um, critiques of trying to, you know, throughout hundreds, thousands of years, trying to decide what that actually, what function that actually means. Um, but most of it boils down to relationship. And so even like we, we talked about on Sunday, this idea that that God through the Trinity in eternity past with God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit are in, mm -hmm. in permanent relationship, mm -hmm. um, an eternal relationship and being made in the image of God means that we demonstrate that same relationship. That's why it was it wasn't good for, for Adam to be alone because he can't demonstrate the image of God in the reciprocity of relationship. Mm. So we think about like, like C.S. Lewis talks about in the four loves, the Trinity as anytime you try to, as you mentioned on Sunday, Ooh, anytime you try Trinity to identify and yeah. discuss Trinity, it's, it doesn't really work. But with the concept of love, we, we see in the symbolism of the Trinity that with love, you need to have someone who expresses love, someone who receives love and then love itself. And uh, Lewis mm -hmm. argued that that's kind of an aspect of how we understand the Trinity and God is love. And so even in relationship with one another, mm -hmm. in order for Adam to experience God's love, we experience in relationship with others. Um, and then even, you know, as Jesus defined the greatest commandment is it's to love the Lord our God, but then that's experienced and expressed in loving neighbor as ourself. And so these things kind of tie together relationally and that we express and experience being made in God's image through relationship with one another and through relationship with God. Which is a great segue into the the very beginning, Genesis, God institutes marriage, mm -hmm. which, you know, I, I, I knew that as a matter of fact, and it was just really good to go back through Genesis chapter 2 and see it in, in plain print and then see it repeated in the New Testament mm -hmm. in plain print. As you deal with folks on a regular basis, we obviously we both do a lot of marriage counseling and premarital um, we, we deal with folks in, in, in crisis. Uh, how, how do you feel like either the enemy's challenging that particular piling, the, this creation, I mean, creation and then image of God and then marriage piling? But that, that one in particular seems to uh, just be on, on a consistent attack in recent years. Yeah, I mean, I think we have this shift, as, as again was mentioned on Sunday, that the worldview um, around us of our culture is that, that my purpose in life is to be happy. Mm -hmm. And so that worldview permeates every aspect of life and experience, whereas a biblical worldview would say our purpose in life is to be holy. Um, and so that when we experience suffering from a cultural worldview, that's a disruption to our happiness. And we yep. need to try to get out of that as quickly as possible. When difficulty comes, we want to avoid it. So marriage is, you know, as uh, 
uh, I can't think of the sacred marriage, right? A sacred yeah. marriage talks about is what if the purpose of marriage is to make us holy? Someone who knows us better mm-hmm. than anyone else is able to refine and kind of rub our edges off. Yeah. Um, and so the trend then, even from the beginning with Lamech, right, the first to take two wives, um, again, the reason it's noted is because it's unusual, mm-hmm. um, but it's about him and it's about promoting his superiority um, and making a name for himself. That's what he says. That's, that's what the, in Genesis it, it notes. And so from polygamy forward, um, from that point, we see this, this distortion of the balance in marriage of having to learn how to serve, having to learn how to care for the needs um, of someone that's different from you. Yeah. And, and, you know, even as we see in Ephesians, like in first Peter, Paul, or Peter says that it's the, the wife is the weaker vessel and that our job in, in Ephesians is to, to give of ourselves, to be the first to serve, the first to die, mm-hmm. the first to give, um, using our power and strength in service of others. And so we see this, this balance that's so critical in marriage. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I love the way uh, the, the one quote I read, it, it says, and this isn't easy, right? Like it, there's a beauty to the refinement because of the, the difficulty of dying to self and, yeah. and, and holding someone mm-hmm. higher than yourself. Then we got to the fourth pylon, which is really new. Uh, mm-hmm. You speak to this as an educator, but for me, that, that it's just it's escalated so fast over the last five years. And it seemed like it was maybe on the radar 10 years ago, but it's in the last five years, it's just rapidly becoming... Uh, the thing everybody's talking about, mm-hmm. um, the the question whether I can change my gender. You deal with some of this in a, a in a clinical way and yep. variety of ways. Love for you to speak to that. Yeah, so I mean, it, it wasn't really in the cultural consciousness even until the 1950s that you would have used the term synonymously, right? Gender and sexuality were, were synonymous terms. Um, and even now, when we talk about animals, um, animals don't have gender, right? Animals have sex. And so... Uh. Yeah, um, because gender is an aspect of self-identity um, that you experience. And so, yeah, so uh, again, it goes back to this identity question of how do I want to define myself? And as culture gives opportunities for expanding choice, mm-hmm. um, we're going to take as many choices as we want to try to not have to take responsibility for the hand that we're dealt if we don't like it. And so um, what what we're seeing, I think, is the the psychological research across past 20, 30 years on other topics has argued that too much choice, that, that some choice is necessary so that we have autonomy uh, and we can direct decisions, but too much choice actually paralyzes us. And then we, it cripples us from being able to actually move forward in any, in any different piece. And so when we look at, at sexuality, biological sex and gender as a choice, actually, um, it does a disservice because that's a, an inherent given that developmentally we experience as children, we align with our, our same-sex parent um, and say, dad's like this, that means this is what it means for me to be a boy. Mom's like this, this is what it means for mm-hmm. me to be a girl. Mm-hmm. And then we form our identity based on those givens. Well, if those are no longer givens, um, then we end up stuck at that, that crossroad, which normally developmentally occurs between the ages of like three and five. Mm-hmm. And then you work it out through early childhood and then into adolescence was what does it mean to use this understanding of self in relation to people who are different from me? Um, so elementary school, you, you play with everybody by, by middle school, you start playing just with your same sex friends because 
the other person, the other, the other gender is foreign. Right. Right. right? They're, yeah. You know, they, they have cooties. Right. Um, and so this is part of that normal developmental process of trying to understand self in relation to others of those who are both the same and, the, and those who are different. Um, and so as we've taken away that and said, it's, it's no longer binary, it's fluid. It actually just paralyzes us. Hmm. Um, and it ends up being kind of logical in, inconsistencies because, you know, we, we can't have categories of biological sex being binary and having all of the related um, health conditions tied to that, mental health, physical health, and then dealing with the identity piece that made it maybe doesn't align with that. Um, it it and creates logical fallacies that we get stuck with as a culture. Just, just for um, certainly parents taking this in, folks more in my age category, mm-hmm. give, give us a little understanding of how rapidly this thing's changing. So, so is, do you know percentages? Are there stats that would tell us how how, how much um, change there's been? Certainly for our teenage kids, our college kids on this particular subject, and 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 uh, marriage as well. Yeah. So, so prior to probably about 2012, uh, this is some of uh, Schreier's book um, on looking at gender. She notes that that we've always had some aspect of transgender presentation, but it's throughout most of human history, it's predominantly males. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of Mash back in the day. Yeah, what's his name? Klinger. He always, he always cross dressed. Right, right. Yeah, yeah on, on the military base. So you yeah. have that. I mean, you have even eunuchs throughout human oh, that's history. True. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but there are always males that maybe just don't fit the cultural stereotype for what it means to be masculine. Right. Um, and so it was always that position of power, though, where women didn't have a capacity really for independent identity throughout most of human history. Anyway. That's right. Um, so that's part of that is men as a position of power can choose to align with that those stereotypes of masculinity or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, you know, some of the transgender, gender dysphoria, gender identity issues clinically that we deal with, um, within the past handful of years, we've seen a complete flip in the percentages. So there's always anywhere between one and 3% of our, of the U S population. So the numbers are mostly U S we don't know world U S population. Um, and it was predominantly male, um, since about 2015 where, our aspects of identity have started to kind of fragment. Um, those numbers have have shot up, and now they're they're arguing probably within a middle school, so within about ten to twenty five year olds, it could be anywhere up to fifteen percent. Wow, um, that are struggling with some of these issues, and it's flipped to be predominantly females, biological females, natal females, that are are dealing with gender identity issues. And the other trend that's different is instead of, so the traditional transgender argument is feeling like your biological sex, the body that you were born in doesn't match your experience. Right. Um, now the, a big piece of the trend in that percentage is not necessarily that as a biological born female, you feel male, but actually now it's more just, you don't feel female. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of rationale and argumentation trying to understand what this difference is. But part of it is as a culture, um, women really are kind of losing footing yet again yeah. and having a place to be to be women, to be able to be feminine. Yeah, I couldn't help but think uh, just from a biblical standpoint, from the beginning, the enemy approaches Eve. And then when, when the Lord pronounces his curse, he pronounce, pronounces this war between the enemy and and Eve, yep. uh, the lady in particular, and every time we make one of these adjustments, it seems like ladies lose. Right. Which is, you know, a- as a man, 
part of my responsibility is to protect yep. and, and to fight against the things that rob yep. a lady of her identity, not, not only in Christ, but even as, as a creative one, which was challenging just as I was reading through it this week. You, I've heard multiple people take uh, some of the gender dysphoria stuff and, and, and I don't know, uh, compare it to something like cutting or, mm-hmm. um, or something like anorexia. Help, me, uh, help us understand that a little bit. Yeah, so some of those um, issues like cutting behavior or yeah, eating disorders are what we call social contagions. Um, and so not that they aren't real struggles that people deal with, but they trend. Uh, and so uh, when I started my clinical work, working in the Boston area, um, I was working with middle schoolers. So this was probably about 2008. And I did all in-home intensive pre and post psychiatric hospitalization work with, with children. And we had, in about 2008, we had one or two students in one middle school um, that were dealing with self-harm behavior cutting. And so because of that, we, we had them hospitalized to stabilize them. Uh, within the end of that year, those kids coming back from the hospital, actually, and learning from other kids in the psychiatric hospital for adolescents, new ways to cut. Uh, we had an epidemic in the middle school where we were dealing with about 50% of the kids in the middle school were, were self-harming. Wow. Um, out of a high, uh, middle school of thousands. Right. Um, and so that trend has just continued now with the self-harm behavior, um, which is it's a means of self-expression, a means of emotional um, handling emotion um, that's that's too big. And so what they're seeing with some of the gender dysphoria things as well is it's a form, it seems to be trending in social contagions uh, with upper middle class white females. Mm. Um, and part of that argument is this issue of identity is how do we understand ourselves? Um, how can we fit in this culture and society that kind of demonizes upper middle class white yeah. um, and trying to find a place and understanding of self in this culture of of un- uncertainty, unsettling, mm-hmm. and so being able to find an identity that is more in line with um, a minority group, especially as we look at um, intersectionality and this philosophy of you're either a victim or an oppressor. Yep. Um, critical race theory. These these philosophies, these theories would argue that if you're not a victim, you're an oppressor, and so I think we're seeing some of this social contagion of people not wanting to be identified as an oppressor. And so being able to either unconsciously or consciously selecting an identity that is in a victim category to have to, to be able to shed some of that oppressor identity. That's good. I can't tell you how many times after we talk, I try to remember the word intersectionality (laughs) (laughs) because when you explain it, it is really helpful. Uh, It was really helpful to me to understand. And, 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 you know, our folks, I thought maybe we take a few minutes and just ask some questions that they're they are they're they ha- they're faced with on a daily basis. Our students are at, are asked some of these questions all right. the time. I had a uh, let's see, she's a middle school student, just a, a great story where she is standing for the biblical definition of marriage, not really like you know promoting it. A uh, part of one of our public schools here in Lexington, one and uh, getting a lot of pushback. All of her friends are calling her homophobic. Their their friends are hanging around. She's got a got to deal with that. Any coaching for our parents on uh, both both for a kid who is making a stand and, and taking on pressure? How do you hold up under the pressure? And then then for some of our parents who kids are really wrestling, do I have same-sex uh, attraction? And and that's an that's a awkward conversation for a parent, but an important one for them to be informed on. Yeah, so a lot of it is being able to be comfortable in your own skin, right, yeah. in your own identity, yeah. um, and being able to 
you know, for a lot of people, I, I don't remember which, maybe Lee Strobel or, you know, somebody, some apologist argues right. that, you know, if you disagree, if we align with the Bible and you disagree with, with that person's view, the person you're upset with isn't that person, it's God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so for some of our students, it's helping them see that the position they're holding, while it's personal to them, in expressing and experiencing it towards others doesn't have to be a personal attack on them. People are, as they have for since the fall, since the garden, they're attacking God and, and God's authority. And so, um, you know, the, the serpent said to Eve, did God actually say? And right. that's, that's the same topic we're dealing with today. Hmm. And so it's this reversal, it's this desiring of independence and self-definition over God-dependence and God-definition. And so I think part of it is helping our, our, our children, our students and understand us. and yeah. know that, that God is sovereign and that we can depend on him and that we don't define truth for ourselves. We discover the truth that he's provided for us. That's good. And so as we deal with our own stuff, part of, I think, with a lot of the same-sex attraction issues, it's being able to expand our understanding of how we define as a culture and as a church masculinity and femininity. This is really helpful when you walk me through this. Yeah, yeah so so while when we'll be talking about this more as we look at the yes. roles, but throughout most of Scripture, the, the sex distinctions of male and female um, are defined in identity more by their roles than they are by um, the way the Bible defines it, more in the roles that they hold in authority and design than they are in kind of specifics around culture. And so we see um, characters like David, who, you know, if we didn't know who he was, we, you know, he, he plays the harp. Depends on when you see him. Yeah, he yeah. plays the harp. He writes poetry. Um, yeah. He's the youngest little brother kind of out in the field that sometimes is forgotten by his family when big stuff comes up. Yep. But he's also, yeah, he's a giant slayer. He kills bears. He kills lions. He, you know, camps out with all his buddies and for years. Um, yep. And so when we tend to think of traits of masculinity or femininity, we map it to culture. Um, and most of the gospel actually appropriately maps to culture because the gospel itself is acultural, but it's understood and experienced through culture. Yep. And so part of our ability to understand the distinctions between male and female or, or masculine and feminine is trying to separate out our culture understanding of those things from how the Bible describes and defines them. And so even things like, like I grew up, you know, hearing, well, men don't have long hair, right? Women have long hair. Um, and that's what the Bible talks about. And you can maybe right. find a couple texts. And it places. helped me and you because we, we don't have real pretty hair. It's that's better right. to save it all off, right? That's right. Yeah, right. you don't have to deal with it. Um, but that's not a, that's a cultural that's right. um, framework of the de- gender differences. Uh, and then you can think of you know, all kinds of different things. Of mm-hmm. Most clothing is framed around culture. I mean, Jesus wore probably a, a tunic, a, more of a dress if we saw him today. Yeah. He's not wearing Levi's. Um, <laughs> exactly. So, so it's thinking through and being able to understand and step back from our own expectations or experiences um, of how we're defining some of these differences and saying if we have children, if we have friends that don't fit into these rigid stereotypes of what it means to be male or female, masculine or feminine in our culture, yep. it might not mean necessarily that they're transgender or fluid. It might just mean they don't fit in these rigid stereotypes. But the church doesn't have a place for them to not fit these rigid stereotypes because the church holds on to those same stereotypes as culture. And ironically, culture, as we were looking at all this transgender stuff, has hammered even harder these gender stereotypes starting even younger 
So some of the curriculum that schools are trained to use is starting in you know pre-K to teach and define rigid stereotypes about what it means to be masculine or feminine so that if you don't fit those stereotypes, you're gender fluid or, or transgender. Yeah, which is really interesting is, uh, as we struggle with, certainly as, as, as that generation struggles and, and, and as a whole nation struggle with the whole gender conversation, uh, we, we, we cannot match the creator. The creator, dis- he created two distinct gender sexes, as we would have referred to it in the 50s. Yep. And we continue and we, we just cause ourselves more pain in the process, which is hard to watch. Right. And yet you and I, and we got the chance to talk to a bunch of folks, our small group leaders the other day. And, and the key was, even as we're pretty sure, we're not pretty sure, we're confident in the pylons or the pilings, the, the pillars of the faith. And yet we're dealing with folks all the time that are not. And so our, our sadness about the situation of the world and, and even for some, some anger about the situation of the world, we, we all have to be careful to keep ourselves in a position to love and maintain relationship mm-hmm. through through these issues. We got you and I got to talk about it a little bit on stage, and I think it'd be good for our folks in the podcast to hear. We talked about uh, just specific questions like, "Do I go to the wedding? I, get, I have a gay friend; he's invited me to the wedding. Do I go to the wedding?" And you, you had a great answer. Yeah. And that line, you'll describe your line. That line might move left or right, but the the basic way to think about it, I thought was really helpful. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, so similar to Paul in Corinthians, right? Paul gives a lot of things that say, this is what the Lord says, and then he says, this is what I say. This yeah, would yeah, be yeah. one of those categories yes. that says, this is, this this is, is what, what I, I say. say. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, there, there's a distinction between attending a wedding and celebrating friendship and relationship with somebody in this momentous occasion, and attending a wedding or, or participating in the wedding as a, a bridesmaid or a, a groomsman. Um, and so... Traditionally, the roles of bridesmaid and groomsmen actually are are part of affirming um, that couple and holding them accountable to stay married. That's that's part of their role. Right. Um, and so, I would argue with somebody, you know, struggling with with this topic to say, you know, I, I think the goal is always to maintain a door of relationship with the person to be able to express God's love for them uh, and His acceptance of them how they are without affirming the behavior that they have. Right. Um, and so there is that distinction, I think, um, again, from my opinion, between attending and participating as a, a bridesmaid or groomsman because of the difference between loving and accepting the person versus affirming what they're doing in, in making this choice. Yeah, that was so good. I And I, I thought about it a lot after we talked. My line might be a little different. I'm not sure that I would even attend, mm-hmm. but I would communicate and I would communicate love mm-hmm. and affection. And at the same time, uh, you know, as, as carefully and as, as much like Christ as possible, try to communicate. I'm, I'm not affirming, but I am loving. That, getting those two together, that was great. And where the line is, everybody probably has a little bit of a different one. Yep. That's where we're saying this is our opinion. Right. But to be like Christ, we're, we're going to love folks across the board yep. and that's saying we're not going to affirm sin. Yeah. And you take your role in account too. I mean, as, yeah. as the pastor, yeah, I have attending a, is a different, is a different level of very role. true. Um, very true. So that's important as well. Yeah. That, that's good. All right. So, uh, on Sunday I brought up all variety of Cheryl's like you, you, you said you talked about just about everything, right? So I talked some about porn and we have a bunch of folks that uh, either addicted or 
porn has a, a significant piece of their heart. Yep. And then we have parents whose children are dealing with technology. I, mean, I would love for you to speak on that and some, some just to give a parent a clue what their kid is actually being exposed to just from your experience and then uh, some helps as yep. next steps to run away from that dangerous addiction. Yeah, so the, the step, the half step before even why we're dealing with porn is such a problem is technology itself, right? So technology itself is an uncharted, we don't know what the consequences are be. It's an uncharted territory mm. for the technology that our children are exposed to. And and they've done a ton of uh, neuroscience literature. Uh, Carderis has a book called uh, Glow Kids. And he says that, that for children, you know, under the age of 12, um, being exposed to the intermittent reward of technology, of video games, of apps, is the same neurochemical response as climax in sex. Wow. Um, and it's addictive. Yeah. And so they don't have the frontal lobe development or the capacity to be able to kind of pull back on, on that. And so the pleasure center gets gets activated regularly, which creates this neural pathway that, that like wet cement, once it's once it's gone multiple times, once the path is trodden, it becomes hardened. So that's an aspect of just technology in general. Wow. Um, so then once you introduce pornography to that, that's also then activating dopamine, serotonin, all these feel-good brain chemicals um, in exposure at real time and, and you know, video content that, that previous to even my generation didn't, didn't have to deal with. Right. Um, the, the combination of those things just makes it really... Um, uh, you, it's incompatible, right? You, I mean, or uh, un, unbeatable. Um, hmm. You're stuck, right? You're 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 giving drugs regularly, and you you can't you can't avoid it. And so, some of that, even as we look at it, at the pornography issue, some of it depends on developmentally, like when you are exposed, because it can become a self-soothing stress response because you feel good when it happens, and it could be your your method like in most addictions of numbing or avoiding. Hmm. Um, as it comes after puberty, then it ties towards your understanding of self and sexuality and others in sexuality. Um, and a lot of the research has shown it follows this same kind of downward trajectory of, of content um, that becomes kind of worsened as you experience it because like with most drugs, you have tolerance and withdrawal. And so hmm. as you experience tolerance, you need more content, more graphic content, more realistic, con and, it, and it kind of amps up as with any substance. Um, it's a process in our brain that that enhances it. And so, for us, part of it is, as in most things, we want to we want to avoid um, initial contact, so that we don't have to worry about it. Right? right. Nancy Reagan's "Just Say No" um, right. from the eighties. The <laughs> the problem with with any substance, any addiction, process, or substance is that the opposite of of addicted is not sober, it's actually connected. So addiction disconnects us from other people in the same way that the curse does. Yeah. Uh, we were connected perfectly with God, with one another, with ourselves and creation, and then the fall happened and we were disconnected. And so addiction is this attempt to form bond or relationship with something that is a cheat, hmm. right? It, it gives yep. this, this false sense of intimacy or this false uh, numbing or high, depending on what it is. And so we see all of these factors at play with pornography in that relationships are difficult. Um, understanding self and connecting with others developmentally is, is hard. And pornography is a shortcut for all those things. And so as parents, we want to put as many safeguards in place to block 
at yep. younger ages. And then developmentally, we want to be able to train to make choices. We can't just block because then when they're 18, right. as with everything, right, then they get choice and we haven't taught them how to deal with it. So we <laughs> block as a prevention. Um, but then we discuss, <laughs> right? The sex talk shouldn't be, you know, one evening at 12 years old. Right. It should be the discussion that happens from two when they start recognizing, you know, boys are like this and girls are like this and have that discussion throughout so that it's a dialogue, a continued dialogue. And so we look at that and, and the reality is because it's a drug, we take drastic measures. Uh, it's changing your brain. And so you take drastic measures, you remove those things that are feeding that, go to flip phones, remove phones, um, you put barriers in place. But as with most addictions, you recognize that slips and relapse are, are probable. Um, and so you build that in so that you don't lose relationship when a slip or a relapse occurs, but that you can recover in relationship. Yeah, so good. I mean, for, for, you know, as a parent of six, all grown now, or at least at least, at least in college, <laughs> this is just a fight that I think every parent, I, I, it caught me off guard. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm probably in that generation where it, it really became apparent technologically. Yep. And um, just, but since, since discovering what a big deal it is, then it's just this constant fight. And whether it be uh, putting covenant eyes on all my kids' mm -hmm. stuff or going flip phones, I've turned in the iPads at school. Like if it's, it was just this fight that I needed to fight for them, and yeah. I couldn't expect them. Though my kids tell me the truth generally on this subject, yeah. I don't damage I don't, might be done. Yeah, and there's just some shame there. Yep. They might tell me the truth on everything but this. Yep. And uh, it was, it's been, man, it's been one of the hardest things about parenting mm -hmm. for for me through my. For through my 30 years of parenting to yep. date, and it's one of those things where I have some regret. I wish I'd have been on top of it more. Hmm. But I, yeah, I just encourage, as you did, the preventative was worth it. Locking them out of stuff. Yep. It just is what it is. It was. I keep thinking of the biblical passage where it tells us to flee. Mm -hmm. So the protection is, uh, is a huge deal. But then at the same time, having this grace and compassion, which we, where we could have a conversation over, has has produced a lot of joy as we've. Mm -hmm. It's brought some humility in my kids' lives when they fail in these areas, and now to be there and meet them in that moment, all that's been. The sexual sin is the only sin in Scripture that we're told to flee. Yeah. Right? Every other it's sin unique. we're told to stand firm. Yeah. Um, and it's because, as Paul says, it's it's a different type of sin it's that occurs against, against ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's intense. Yeah, well, it, we have a bunch of helps online on this subject. We had a couple moms send in some books that will be really helpful, and you, you've got some content online where folks could... Could, could get some help on this as well. We're running out of time. We, we've talked about a bunch, but in, in the next couple weeks, we're going to take every Sunday for three weeks and talk about men, males, and then the following three weeks. Ladies, by the way, my the way I've experienced this in the past is that you, you talk your husband into coming in the next three weeks and y'all go on vacation the next week when, when we get the female. So you got to come to all six, right? You got to get the three male and the three female. And we're going to use some pretty simple words. You and I talked about this. I thought this would be a great way to close. We certainly would love for everybody to attend those six Sundays. And for, for men, we're going to talk about provide, pursue, and protect. Uh, not exactly sure what order. And then females, we're going to use invite, nurture, and partner. And, and we both talked about it. There's an oversimplification there. Yep. As a matter of fact, both uh, men and women do all six of those things. Help help our folks understand what we're going to do and, and how that really helps us show the two genders as distinct. Yeah, so, so in the curse, which affected everyone, um, the consequence of the curse was universal, 
but it was specifically tied to the creation mandate, what God called Adam and Eve to do as made in his image. And so mm-hmm. God said to be fruitful, to be multiply, uh, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to to order the earth. Yeah. I right? like the word cultivate. To cultivate. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's great. And so so we see that the fruit fruitful and multiply, that Eve is going to experience pain in childbirth. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a direct impact on that piece of of actually multiplying, but the fruitful piece also is relational. And so we see Eve then impacted to say, you know, her desire to submit to the kind of role and authority that God designed in the marriage relationship is going to be more difficult. Often, probably, you know, from what I've seen is because she can do things better. Absolutely right. Um, And it's not that she can't do things better that she submits. She submits because that's the the harmony that God designed in being made in his image in the same way that you have the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in equality, yep. functioning in different roles um, to demonstrate his love for us. And so so we see that in the fall. And then we see for, for Adam dealing with his job was to cultivate, um, and he experiences pain and sweat in cultivating. Yep. And he has this responsibility and authority to, to provide. And so it's not that Eve doesn't provide, it's that when there's a problem, just like we see with the fall, Adam is the one who's held responsible for it um, as the one that God put in authority. And so the buck stops with him, as, as Truman said. <laughs> right. um, and so that, that's part of these distinctions is that we work in tandem with one another to support and to complement the, the roles and giftings that God has given us. And sometimes those that we have particular roles, but the gifting God provides through the, the spirit and just in through general creation are not gender specific often. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, we, we balance the capacity to understand what our function is based on those. So, yeah, men being able to provide, protect, and pursue is pursuing is in direct response to our own tendency, I think, that we is demonstrated in the fall of to avoid, to be complacent, to be passive. passive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Providing, too, is not taking responsibility. Uh, and then protect is the same, right? Not taking responsibility in and stepping in and doing what is right and, and how God responded. And then the women's of invite, nurture, and, and partner is, again, that direct response of we're called to partner with the other person, even if they're kind of not leading correctly. Right. Um, because that demonstrates God's provision for us and our dependence actually on God, even in this relationship, to care for us. Um, and we see that in nurture is the corrected piece for, for the fall of being fruitful and multiplying. And then inviting is being willing to open yourself up um, to the plan and purpose of God and trust him to be dependent on him instead of trying to be independent like they did in the fall. Yeah. It's uh, so it ends up, uh, the distinctions are just absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And so the frustration for, for us as believers is, is one ourselves as we, as we, by the way, we live argue with the distinctions. Um, but then as we see our world try to erode the creative order there, it's, it's tough to watch when when I keep looking at that canvas in my mind of all creation when a man and a woman stand hand in hand. You know, even in a lot of the a lot of the artists, that's how in, in your eyes would immediately when you look at the at the picture of all creation and all of its greatness, your eyes go straight to the man and the woman together, mm-hmm. and you don't really focus on one or the other, and you don't focus on the sun or the moon. It's it's that crescendo of creation where Jesus said, I mean, God says it's this is very good. Yep. So we'll celebrate that for six weeks, and we'll probably get in, in here again to answer some more questions. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. Folks, hey, as you have questions, feel free to shoot them to us at Radius. We, 
either talk to your campus pastor, or shoot us an email. We, we uh, as, as a team, we're going to work through this together and really hope to open up this conversation because we all need to grow mm-hmm. as we go forward. And there's a question submission spot on radiuschurch.info. Great. Where people great. can submit questions. I think it's on the app too. It's on the app. Yeah. Yep. Great. So y'all get on it. Really uh, enjoyed having a few minutes with you today.